Hello, everybody. I am John Allen, your host here on Last Week in the Church, the show where we harvest the fruits of the last week of journalism on the Vatican and global Catholic Church beat. Here is what we've got for you this week. We begin with not Saturday night fever, but Friday morning fever. Pope Francis cancels all of his meetings on Friday due to what the Vatican described as a fever causing a new mini papal health scare, although he seems to have rebounded quite admirably. We'll explain what's going on there. Second, the tribulations of the tribunal, the Vatican's trial of the century, alleging financial corruption against 10 different defendants, including for the first time a cardinal of the church, lumbers along amid mounting accusations that it's becoming something of a kangaroo court in which The rights of the defense are more conspicuous by their absence. We'll try to unpack what the deal there is. Third, beware of Greeks bearing gifts. That, of course, is a line from Virgil's Aeneid about the destruction of Troy. But it is also the model of three eco-activists who are also themselves facing Vatican trial. We'll explain what the deal there is. Fourth, Italy's obedient rebel. Italy celebrates the legacy of the most famous and probably most controversial Catholic priest of the 20th century. We'll explain why the legacy of Don Lorenzo Milani holds a couple of permanent lessons for Catholics in all places and of all times. And then finally, interviews as institution. Why Pope Francis may be doing to the interview what Pope John Paul II did to the trip. All that and more is waiting for you on this episode of Last Week in the Church, so please do not touch that dial. Stay where you are. Okay, everybody, welcome back to the show. Hope you had a wonderful weekend. If you were watching this show from America, hope you had a great Memorial Day. If you're watching from any place else, well, I still hope you had a great time. If you were watching last week, you know I began last week's episode with an appeal. An appeal to contribute to a GoFundMe campaign on behalf of Crux's managing editor, Charles Collins, who has experienced a devastating illness, and he, his wife, and his kids desperately need our help. I'm here to do two things. One is to thank you. We have raised Basically, 19,000 English pounds. Charlie and his family live in the UK, which translates to almost $24,000 in US money. And that's a great response for a 10-day campaign. We are deeply grateful. My second point is to say we aren't done. Any of you who have any experience with a loved one, a family member, a friend who has experienced a catastrophic medical condition, you know that 24,000, that just scratches the surface of the real need. If you go on the Crux webpage, you will see an editor's note from me. Within that editor's note is the link to the GoFundMe campaign. If there's anything you can do, all I can say from the bottom of our collective hearts, really, here at Crux, is that we would be deeply grateful. Please, if you can, help out. Charlie is a great guy. He's a magnificent husband. He's a wonderful father. And if we can't help somebody like that, then, you know, what are we for? All right, let's get into the news. So, Saturday Night Fever was a famous American film of the 1970s about the vicissitudes of a man in white. In that case, of course, it was a very young John Travolta as the disco king. 
Well, this week on the Vatican Beat, we had Friday morning fever, once again about a man in white, only in this case, Pope Francis. Every day, Monday through Saturday, the Vatican, early in the morning, sends out to journalists a list of the Pope's appointments that day. Friday morning, we didn't get one. And that, of course, made people curious. My wife, Elise Ann Allen, our superstar Vatican correspondent, sent a note to the Vatican spokesperson asking for clarification, as did an untold multitude of her colleagues. And after a suspiciously long period of time, we finally got a response basically saying that the Pope had canceled all of his appointments that day due to what the Vatican spokesman described as a state of fever. Now, in English, of course, if you say somebody is in a fevered state, we usually mean that as a kind of emotional tumult, not necessarily a physical condition, but in this case, all he meant was that the Pope was running a fever. Now, you know, look, given the fact that Pope Francis not long ago was in the hospital for four days because of a severe bout of bronchitis, because he's had most of his colon removed, because he's confined to a wheelchair often because of a severe nerve condition, and for the mere fact that the guy is 86, you know, this caused a bit of a ferment, right? People were concerned. However, what became clear immediately is that really all that was going on is that the Pope was overscheduled the day before, Thursday. My wife, Elise, actually counted. There were eight separate events on the Pope's schedule on Thursday, including a big, you know, hoo-ha with young people in the afternoon sponsored by an educational foundation the Pope launched when he was in Buenos Aires. They just simply wore him out, okay? And so he took Friday morning off. By Saturday, he was back in the saddle. He again had a number of meetings during the day. Saturday afternoon, he got in his Ford Focus and traveled across town to do an interview for Rye, the national TV broadcaster. Sunday morning, he celebrated the Pentecost Mass. Monday morning, he sat down with the president of Italy, Sergio Mattarella, who is, by the way, 81. So this is two octogenarians getting together and on and on. In other words, look, this was merely a minor bump in the road. Now I get it. Given the Pope's medical history and given his age, any bump in the road is going to be a matter of concern. On the other hand, I would simply caution that we should not overinterpret these bumps in the road because between now and whenever the end comes, there are likely to be many, many more. And before going too far down the road, you know, we need to pause to assess what the actual state of things really is. You know, in Italian, we would say, non dimenticare, questo è un papa pieno di grinta. And he never forget, this is a pope full of determination. And I think that's what we saw the rest of the weekend. All right, second up this week, the tribulations of the tribunal. The Vatican's trial of the century, charging 10 defendants, including Italian Cardinal. Bechu, the Pope's former chief of staff with various forms of financial crime, lumbered on this past week with two separate hearings. And the gist of it is that the presiding judge, Giuseppe Pignatone, wants to have this wrapped up by the end of the year. So he has set a calendar in which the final evidentiary hearing, that is the final hearing to take evidence, is going to be June 13th. 
Then in July, the prosecution will present its concluding arguments. In late September, early October, the third parties in the case will present their summations. Then beginning in mid-October, it will be the turn of the defense, and that's going to take forever because there are 10 different defendants. They all have their own lawyers. But in any event, Pignatoni wants to have everything done, and he wants a verdict by the end of the year. Now, while all this is going on, there are mounting complaints, particularly, of course, among the defendants, that this trial is becoming something of a show trial that is, you know, grinding towards a predetermined outcome. This week, Pignatoni and the other two justices on the three-judge panel rejected requests from the defense that WhatsApp messages between the prosecutor in this case, an Italian layman named Alessandro Didi, and one of the key figures, a female figure, Giovanna Querchi, that their WhatsApp messages, the defense had asked that they be entered into evidence. The judge refused that. The defense was arguing that those WhatsApp messages are important to show that Querchi and another Italian layman by the name of Francesca Cialqui and the star witness in this case, Italian Monsignor Alberto Perlasca, were involved in a kind of plot to defame, well, to blame everything on Cardinal Bechu and to kind of defame him in a way that distorted the reality of the situation. The fact that the court has refused to allow those pieces of evidence to be entered uh, into the trial record has therefore given rise to complaints from the defense. Oh, and by the way, the motive for refusing to do so. Also, the defense had asked that other pieces of Perlaska's testimony that had been withheld by Didi, that those also be entered into the trial record. The court also refused that. The logic was that they may be used in other proceedings down the line. But of course, the defense lawyers are arguing, we don't really care about other procedures down the line. We're trying to provide an adequate defense for our client right now, and you're not letting us do that. So, you know, if these defendants are eventually found guilty, there is obviously going to be a howl of protest that they were found guilty at the expense of due process and the legitimate rights of the defense. You know, we'll see how all this plays out. All I can say is stay tuned. We should have a verdict by the end of the year. It will be very interesting at that point to see what the takeaway is in terms of whether this strikes independent, fair-minded observers as, you know, historic exercise of justice or another instance in which the Vatican simply rode roughshod over the rights of the people that it had already decided in advance were the bad guys in the story. All right, we'll, we'll see how it plays out. Third up this week, beware of Greeks bearing gifts. As I mentioned at the top of the show, that, of course, is the famous line of Leocunt, a character in Virgil's famous epic poem, Aeneid, about the fall of Troy. Leocunt was a Trojan who realized that this giant horse that the Greeks wanted to give the Trojans as a gift was actually a weapon of war, right, and warned them not to accept it. He wasn't listened to, and of course, the Greeks came pouring out of the horse, destroyed Troy, and that was that. So, it's relevant for this reason. Last August, 
three environmental activists who are part of a group called Ultima Generazione, that's an Italian phrase meaning the last generation, broke into the Vatican museums and glued a sign onto a statue of Leocond in the Vatican museums, which read, no gas, no carbon. And it was part of their efforts to, you know, raise an alarm about climate change and global warming and all of that. They were charged with defacing that statue, and they are now currently on trial in the Vatican. Each of the three people involved, that is the two activists who actually glued the statue or glued the sign onto the statue, and then a third member of their group who filmed them using her cell phone while doing all of this, they could face between six months and three years in jail, fine of about 4,000 euro each. They have written an appeal to Pope Francis saying, hey, we just acted in the spirit of your encyclical Laudato Si about the care of creation. We figured you'd get it. Please come to our aid. So far, there's been no direct response from the Vatican. Now, it is the case that a few days ago, Italian Archbishop Rino Fisichella, who heads, who is one of the leaders of the Vatican's Department for Evangelization, released a letter for the World Day of Tourism in which he condemned attacks on works of art. Some people took that as an indirect response from the Vatican. I'm a little skeptical of that. Nobody would consider Reno Fisichella one of the Pope's BFFs. But whatever, you know, we will see how this plays out. It is nevertheless, I suppose, a test of how far will the new spirit of environmental activism in the Catholic Church under Pope Francis, how far will that go? Will it extend to radical environmental activists, what some people would consider eco-terrorists? Maybe we'll get an answer to that question out of this trial. All right, fourth up this week, uh, we have Italy's obedient rebel. This is Father Lorenzo Milani, 20th century Catholic priest, who is famous, I suppose, for three things. One, launching an experiment in a popular school intended to impart to the children of the poor a sort of a form of culture that would allow them to critically analyze their social standing, that is, their poverty, their subjugation. Second, Milani was an advocate of conscientious objection from mandatory military service. And third, the very last thing he did really was he wrote a book which was a stinging indictment of educational systems in Europe, which he believed reinforced class prejudice, which many people see as part of the inspiration for the student rebellions of 1968. Now, at the time of his death, Milani seemed a loser, to be quite honest. He died in 1967. At that time, his books had been censored, that is, you know, shut down, in effect, by the Vatican, by the Holy Office. They were on the index of prohibited books. He had asked for a meeting with Pope John XXIII to explain his situation. That meeting was refused. His own cardinal in Florence thought of him as an egomaniac. We know that from the cardinal's diary. He said that Milani was drunk on his own celebrity. He refused to go to the small town where Milani was serving while he was on his deathbed to give him comfort. I mean, in general, 
Everything at that time would have told you that as soon as he died, he was going to be forgotten. However, he told a friend as he was dying that they'll understand me in 50 years. And you know what? He was spot on because in 2017, on the 50 year anniversary of his death, Pope Francis went to Barbiana in Tuscany, the small, I mean, tiny little outpost where Milani had been sent in exile to call him an exemplary priest and to pray that his example would continue to illuminate the path of the church in all times and all places. And on this past Saturday, on the 100th anniversary of Milani's birth, President Mattarella of Italy made the trek to Barbiana to praise Milani as an Italian patriot, saying that for him, the country's constitution was a secular gospel. Now, this all illustrates two points in my mind. One, a truth that oblate father Ron Rollheiser once explained to me, which is that oftentimes saints are not the kind of people you necessarily want to sit down and have a beer with. They can be live wires. They can be cantankerous and irascible and hard to take because they're just full of the spirit, right? And that may well have been the case with Milani. The second point is be very careful about deciding who the winners and losers in Catholic history are in our own time, because word to the wise, history has its own mind, and it often doesn't align with what we think in the here and now. Finally this week, the interview is institution. I mentioned at the top of the show that Pope Francis on Saturday went to the headquarters of the Italian national broadcaster Rai on Saturday to do an interview, which is going to be broadcast on June 4th. That got me thinking. Pope Francis does a lot of interviews. I wondered exactly how many he's done. I asked somebody in the Vatican's Dicastery for Communications. Answer, we have no idea. I asked somebody in the Vatican press office. Oh, don't know. The conventional number that's given, if you were to Google this, is over 200. But that's really just a way of saying, we don't know. Now, here's the thing. If you want to make an impact as a pope, one great way to do it is to do more of something than anybody else has ever done. So take St. John Paul II and foreign travel. John Paul made 104 foreign trips visiting 129 countries. Do you know who the previous record holder was? Pope Paul VI, who did nine. Nine. Okay, John Paul did 104. John Paul II, Benedict XVI, Paul VI, these guys, you know, they didn't give interviews. Like, the very rare occasions when they did, it was a sensation. Pope Francis now gives almost an interview a week. I mean, we can barely write up the one he just gave before the new one comes out. Now, here's the thing about Pope John Paul II and trips and Francis and interviews. They are both, in a sense, ways of making the modern papacy relevant. When John Paul went on the road, that became the story of the week. The entire global press corps followed him, and they've continued to do that for subsequent popes. Similarly, when Pope Francis gives interviews, it becomes a story that dominates the news cycle. It keeps the pope before the public eye. By the way, they were both also criticized. You know, when John Paul II traveled, people would complain these trips were enormously expensive and that they amounted to papalolatry, that is, idolatry of the Pope, putting the Pope in front of adoring crowds so it would make it look like he was universally loved. I remember 
One very well-known liberal European cardinal in the late 1990s who actually told me off the record that in his opinion, there was no difference between the trips of John Paul II and Hitler's Nuremberg rallies. They were both intended to make the great leader look universally loved. Well, similarly, people say of Francis's interviews, he only talks to journalists who were in the tank. You know, when is the last time he took a hard question? You know, he does these interviews in order to have a friendly atmosphere in which he can say the things he wants to say without being pressed on anything he doesn't really want to talk about. Well, maybe all of that criticism has some merit to it, but what you cannot deny is that the trips have now become an institution. No future pope will ever be able to not travel because John Paul II made it clear that these trips are indispensable ways of making the papacy physically present to the four corners of the earth. And in the same way, it's probably going to be very difficult for any future pope to decline interviews because it is another way in which the pope can get the word out, can communicate with the wider world. And in that sense, you would have to say that Pope Francis, whether you like it or not, whether you approve of it or not, like John Paul before him, Pope Francis has changed the physiognomy of the papacy forever. All right, that is our show for this week. You can find full coverage of all these stories on the Crux site. That is cruxnow.com. Again, cruxnow.com. When you were there, please remember, if you can, contribute to the campaign for Charlie Collins, our managing editor. He and his family desperately need your help, and we will be forever grateful. We will be back here next week, same bat time, same bat channel. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, have a fantastic and blessed week, and we will talk to you again very soon.